This message is presented by Matthew Wilson, Pastor Chuck Wilson's son. Hi, uh, my name is Matthew Wilson, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this. And I want to thank the church also for the opportunity to to do a message Uh I'm a student at Cairn right now in the MDiv. I got about a year left. Uh, but before we get into our message today, as I ran as I ran through this, uh, it's it's a lot longer than I, I expected it to be. So I'm gonna break the sermon into, into two parts. So if you only have time to listen to one message, I encourage you to go listen to the second one. The first one is more of a it's more of a introduction to the ideas that are necessary to understand before you before you can play with the ideas in in the second sermon uh you 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 still can understand i'll try to do a good enough job so you can understand what's going on in the second part by giving an introduction um but if you only have time for one just listen to the second one this one's still really important and these ideas are really important but uh, if you only have time for one, I, I, yeah, just go, go listen to the second one. So also before we begin to get you thinking on our topic, I want you to think about a hypothetical situation. Maybe you've been in this situation before, but say a friend, uh, of yours, who's an unbeliever comes up to you and asks, well, how am I to respond to the gospel? So this individual they have an understanding of the gospel. They they might know what it is, but now they're asking, how am I to respond to it? What must I do to be saved, right? So I'm assuming most of us would say, well, simply believe. Just believe in Jesus. And then what if the individual asks, well, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And maybe you will say, well, it means to put your trust in Christ. And then the individual will say, well, what does it mean to put your trust in Christ? Can I trust Jesus and then just do whatever I want? Live however which way I want? And then maybe you would answer, well, you must repent too. And then he might ask, well, what do I do first? How do those relate to each other? Do I have to repent and then trust in Jesus? Or do I trust in Jesus and then repent? Is it all one movement? So that's kind of the situation Uh those are kind of the questions that I want to be handling in this in this message and the next one. But this one is more of what we're going to be dealing with in this one specifically is the necessity for repentance, how it's conditioned for salvation, and uh, the necessity for faith, how it also is a condition for salvation, and what each of them are specifically. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper not too deep, but a little bit deeper uh, on these topics. So, the importance of this of this message, I, I don't think, can really be overstated. Uh, like, in 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 this topic, we're talking about getting the response to the gospel right. Like, we we must not only get the gospel right, but we must get the proper response to the gospel. Right, because when we don't get that right, uh, a lot of damage can be done, and and I think we see that in our day today with a lot of false conversions on one hand, and then on the other hand, you see a lot of people who uh, 
uh, don't think that salvation is possible because the uh, the way to Christ has been made impossible, essentially. Um, so this question or this topic really is important because eternity is on the line. Uh, making the way clear for unbelievers to Christ, uh, it's vital. So what we're going to see in this message and the next is that repentance and faith, they're inseparable. They literally, they cannot be separated and they must necessarily come together. So faith and repentance are the proper response to the gospel. It's really that simple, but uh, I just want to dig into that a good bit. So this part one is going to be structured as follows. I'm going to discuss repentance and then faith. And that's it. So in repentance, I'm going to talk about first the necessity of repentance and then what repentance is, what saving repentance is, true repentance, really. And then uh, in the faith section, I'm going to do the same thing, the necessity of faith. And I'm going to I'm going to teach on justification by faith. And then I'm going to talk about what faith is. Uh and this, this sermon is topical. It's not grounded on one text. Uh, it is a lot of text put together, understood together. Uh, but I want to frame the sermon uh, from Mark 1, 14 to 15. And I'm going to be using the NIV version. And I'll, I'll comment on it when I think there needs to be good explanation. But uh, I think the NIV does a pretty good job. So Mark 1, 14 to 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Let's pray before we get into this. So God, I, I just ask that you would, you would help us to understand these concepts. You would help us to have clear minds as we think through these things and and I pray that you would you would work in our spirits and our in our lives so that we would we would have willing a willing disposition to to obey you and to trust in you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So section one repentance. Uh right, so in, in this section we're gonna be talking about necessity and then what it is. So the necessity of repentance. This is a vital point to mention, and I, I I can't believe this, honestly, but it's a vital point to mention because there's a movement within the church, and this happened a, a little while ago. I think it was before I was born, but it's called the Lordship Controversy. And in this controversy, one of the sides says that repentance is not a necessary condition of salvation. In fact, repentance isn't and some of, not all of them believe this, but some of them would even say that repentance isn't even necessary at all in the Christian life. Now, not all of them believe that. Some say that repentance must come, but it comes after faith. Uh, and it could take, who knows what the time span is, but they argue that all one must do is believe in order to be saved. And repentance is viewed as a work that plays no role in conversion. And that's extremely, extremely dangerous because the Bible doesn't teach it. And two, because it produces false converts. There are people who who claim to be believers in this world, but their lives show no fruit from repentance. 
So we're not going to exhaustively handle this, but I just want to make some mention of the necessity of repentance. So first, in, in Mark 1, 14 to 15, Jesus, the first words out of his mouth in Mark's gospel are repent and believe the gospel. The, this is a command. It's not optional. And that's very simple. So we're just going to move on. Jesus commands it. Number two, uh, and I'll, I'll probably do a couple more because I'm splitting this into two, but I'll, I'll, the second one is in, in Acts 2, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, right? Uh, verse 37, the people, they're cut to the heart after Peter's message. They say, what should we do? And Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So we see this relationship between repentance and forgiveness. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You notice how he doesn't even say believe. He doesn't say believe. He just says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And that word for, most people would take that to mean repentance leading to the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if that's absolutely necessary, but I, I do think that that does a good justice to that um, to that word. Uh, and also, it's important to notice when you're reading through the book of Acts, there really isn't there aren't many mentions of the word believe in response to the gospel. You do see certain examples of that, like uh, when the jailer is about to kill himself and Paul says, uh, believe and you and your family will be saved. Something along those lines. I'm not sure about the exact wording there, but he, he, he focuses on belief there. I don't even think he says repent. But in general, the the main focus in the book of Acts is, is more on repentance than it is on faith or belief. Uh, also, it, you could see why someone would say uh, that baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins from this passage, but we have to take the whole, the whole counsel of the New Testament and, and the Bible before we jump to such a conclusion. Um, next, in, in Acts 20, Paul, he's summing up his teaching to the elders in Ephesus. Uh, this is Acts 20, verses 20 to 21. Paul says, <clears throat> You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So notice how Paul says that both Jews and Greeks must turn to God in repentance. The word must actually isn't in the original text, but the NIV actually, I think it does a really good job of putting it there because that's Paul's point is that these aren't optional. These are necessary responses. And the point in Paul's mind, right, it's, it's repentance and faith. They're not optional in his teachings. Next, in Luke 13, Jesus, he's speaking to a group of people who are telling him about how Pilate mixed their blood with uh, with some sort of sacrifice. So I, it seems that they were killed in some sort of heinous way. But anyways, Jesus says, in response to this, he's like, unless you too repent, you will perish. And Jesus is making the point, not that these people who were killed in such a way were great sinners, but that those hearing would perish too if they do not repent. Jesus is not saying 
that they will simply die just as they died because everybody's going to die one day. He's not just making that point. He's saying that if you don't repent, you will perish eternally. And that's contingent, right? This is the whole point. That's contingent upon repentance. So if you don't repent, you will perish eternally. You will suffer eternal consequences. It's very straightforward. And even more clear than that on this point is Second Peter 3, 9. Uh, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as someone understands slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So you can see that the opposite of perishing in this verse is coming to repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Therefore, repentance is necessary for having life. It's very, very simple. So the whole point of this section, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at more passages, but I mean, you can go on and go on and go on. The point of the section is to say that repentance is necessary for salvation. It's necessary. So to not preach repentance is to ignore a lot of what the Bible gives us examples of as the proper response to the gospel preached. The question still remains, though, exactly how repentance fits into the equation of conversion, or not the equation, fits into conversion itself. But I'm going to deal with that probably more in the second part of, like the second part, not, not in this specific message. But let's look at exactly what repentance is. So many of you, you probably know that repentance is a a turning from sin. That's how you have it defined in your mind. And that's good. That's, that's really good. Um, but I want to add a little bit more meat to that definition. So as with most words, uh, the word for repentance or the, the verb to repent, uh, it has a semantic range. That basically just means that it can have a nuanced meaning in different contexts. But our concern here today is with a general definition uh, that encompasses like the, the, the biblical picture of repentance. And there are three vital aspects to repentance that we must understand. Uh, repentance, it involves the whole person. First, the intellect. Second, the emotions. And third, the will. So we're going to look at each of these uh each of these aspects in in the section and and I'm going to rely pretty heavily on John MacArthur and John Murray for this section just to let you know where I'm getting most of this information from other than like lexicons and whatever so the word for repentance can literally mean a change of mind uh right we're in we're in the intellectual uh section so the word for repentance can literally mean a change of mind Biblically, the word does not simply mean a change of mind, but it always carries more with it. But with that said, repentance always begins with the intellectual recognition of sin. It always begins there. It begins in the mind. So MacArthur says, repentance begins with the recognition of sin, that we are sinners, and that our sin is an affront to a holy God, and more precisely, that we are personally responsible for our own guilt. End quote. David, he illustrates this really well in Psalm uh, 51, 2-3, when he says, For I know 
my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. End quote. This comes after David just murders someone and commits adultery. Uh, and, and when he says, I've, I've sinned against you and you alone, he doesn't mean that he's literally only sinned against God. But I, I think he's speaking in comparison with his sin against people. Like, he's very clearly sinned against people and heinously sinned against people. But his transgression, his sin, is ultimately against God. And that's why he says that. But he knows that. That's an intellectual understanding that he has. So something else that's important to note here, and John Murray, he, he says this in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and it's that repentance is a change of mind with reference to particular sins. Sins that are sins in all the particularity and individuality that belong to our sins, end quote. So what he means here is that repentance is a change of mind about our personal sins, the ones that are near and dear to us, the ones that we have a deep relationship with. Repentance begins with a change of mind concerning these sins. Also, sins in general, but specifically the ones that are personal to us, the ones that are ours. True repentance must also have some understanding of who Christ is and what he did. Uh, but I'm going to touch on that a little bit more when we look at faith uh, in the next session, section and especially in the, uh, in the last section. So that was the intellectual aspect of repentance. Now we're going to look at the emotional. So genuine repentance, it also includes an emotional sorrow over the sin that we are intellectually aware of. So you can be intellectually aware of sin in your life, right? And have no emotional response to it. You can be neutral to it. You can even have a, a positive emotional response to it where, whereby like you, you like it. Uh, but that's not true repentance, obviously, right? True repentance, it involves regret, sadness, contrition. It, contrition, sorry. It's, there, there's a pain that you feel because you've sinned against God. And this emotional response, it's not, it's not because, uh, we've been caught or because of the natural consequences of our sin. It's not just because we're reaping the negative fruit from sinning in a certain way, like, like like wasting a lot of time. If you waste a lot of time, you're not going to be productive and therefore achieve anything. So it, it's not, I, I wouldn't feel sorry just for wasting time because I haven't achieved it. I, I feel sorry for um, squandering the time that God has given me because I'm sinning against God by doing that. That's that's more of what we're trying to get at here. And and this naturally, the emotional response naturally flows from the intellectual aspect of repentance. It flows from knowing that you sin against God. So we feel the emotional pain because of what we come to understand about our sin against God. That's the emotional aspect. Now let's move on to the last one. This is the volitional aspect of repentance. This is one of the most emphasized aspects of repentance. And this is, this is where we get our definition that most of us know well, a turning from sin. 
but we need to be so, so, so careful here uh, with our understanding. And you'll see why, like, as, as this goes on, as you listen to the second, the second part, but if you've lost track a little bit, pay attention here. Cause I, I'm, and I'll try to reiterate this, but pay, pay close attention here. Um, so the volitional aspect of repentance, this, this aspect highlights the, uh, the total transformation of the will. Repentance is not only a change of mind, but it's a change of the will. But what is that change? It's a change from a will that is determined to hold on to sin to a will that is determined to abandon it, particularly to abandon those sins that are on the top of our minds. The ones that are, as, as John Murray said, the ones that are close to us, dear to us. And, and it's a will that surrenders its life, everything to Jesus. Not only is it a turning from sin, but it's a giving of a life to Christ so that Jesus is Lord. That's really what it comes down to. He's the master. We are his slave. The way that I like to think of this aspect of repentance is like I define it this way, like in my own mind, it's a willing disposition and resolve to let go of sin for good, to part ways with it, especially the ones that are on top of my mind, right? And to give my life fully to Christ so that whatever he asks of me, I'll do. That's true repentance. It's to let go of all selfish ambition, desires, goals, hopes, and have a willing disposition to let Christ rule my life. And underneath that is if Christ is ruling, if he's the one who is making the decisions for me, that means that I'm letting go of my sin. I must. So very quickly, and this is, this is the vital point that I was mentioning before. So if you checked out, check in, this is vital. Repentance is not a work. Repentance isn't doing anything. It's an inward change in response to the gospel. But though repentance isn't a work, good works always necessarily follow true repentance. But they are not repentance. They are the fruit of repentance, but they themselves are not repentance. That's vital to understand. You can't get this mixed up because if you get this mixed up, uh, you're, you're going to demand <clears throat> that you have visible fruits of repentance before that an individual has visible fruits of repentance before they can be saved. And that's, that's, I, I'll talk about this more in the last section, but to, to say that is to, uh, put a barrier between the sinner and Christ that isn't necessary. Uh, it's, it's works is really what it is. And works are not a part of, of conversion. MacArthur, he rightly says that repentance is not a pre-salvation attempt to set one's life in order. The call to repentance is not a command to make sin right before turning to Christ in faith. That's not what repentance is. I'll repeat, repentance isn't a work. Fruits always follow, right? They always follow. If someone claims to be repentant but has no fruit, they aren't repentant. It's very simple. But you cannot demand that an individual in his coming to Christ 
and his conversion show fruits of repentance. Uh, it's not a doing of anything, but fruits follow. It's very simple. If someone determines to forsake sin, there, there, there necessarily will be some visible fruit. Okay, so that's that's repentance. Before we move on to faith, let's reiterate real quick, real quickly what we've gone over. First, repentance is necessary. We're not. I didn't go into that too much in depth, depth, but repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation. Second, uh, we understand that repentance is a change of mind with reference to our sin against God. It's an emotional response uh, to that intellectual understanding. Uh, we feel contrition, sadness, pain. And third, it is a volitional aspect whereby we have a willing disposition and determination to forsake sin, specifically the ones that are ours, personal to us. And lastly, repentance isn't a work. It's not something, uh, there, there is no outward fruit of repentance that's necessary to say that repentance uh, is there in conversion specifically. Now, fruits always follow, they always necessarily follow, but you can't say uh, that repentance is fruit. Fruit is the fruit of repentance. Works are the fruit of repentance. That's, that's a really important distinction to make. So now we're going to move on to faith. And then in the second part, I'll, I'll talk about how these two ideas go together. So faith. We're about to talk about the necessity of faith and then what faith itself is. Most of us would probably say that faith is believing or trusting in Jesus, and that's good. Uh, but I'm going to add some more meat to that definition, just as I did to the definition of repentance, just to help our understandings of these of these concepts. So, in order to teach about the necessity of faith, I'm going to talk about the justif uh, talk about justification by faith. And many of us have, have probably heard this this phrase, justification by faith, and justification by faith alone. Um, and I want to go to the passage where that idea is primarily drawn from. I, I would like to look at more, but uh, it is, there's not enough time is really what it comes down to. Um, so the verse I want to use to ground us here is Romans 3.28. Paul is writing and he says, We maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And the phrase that we're going to focus on specifically is justified by faith. Maintain that a person is justified by faith. So, like I said, I'm assuming a lot of us know this phrase, but I just want to break it down. And in order to break down, you know, in order to understand sentences, right? Like this is so, it's elementary, but it's kind of a step that we, we tend to overlook or skip because we think that we understand what words mean and, and what phrases mean and we just kind of, skim over it. So I want to go a little bit slower here and take them word by word, take each word word by word. Um, so the first word is justified. BDAG, which is probably the one, it's at least one of the best Greek lexicons, uh, defines the word in the specific context to be pronounced and treated as righteous. So I really like this definition here because it understands that a that a, an individual is declared to be righteous and treated as if 
he himself is righteous, even though there's no implication that the individual is in and of himself righteous. So it's to be pronounced and treated as righteous. That's what to be justified is, especially in this context. So to be justified, <laughs> to be justified, it's a declaration of status. This is vital. It has nothing to do with inherent righteous righteousness within, uh, because no individual actually is inherently righteous, and therefore cannot be right before God based on his own his own righteousness, because God's holy. Right? God's very nature demands holiness. So to be justified is to be declared, considered, and treated as if an individual is actually righteous, even though he's not. But how can a person be justified? How can he be uh, considered righteous and treated that way? And that's where we see the word by. How is a person justified? By. By what? By faith. We're going to talk about what faith is in a minute, but I just want to want to show you that faith is the means by which an individual is trans, an individual is justified. So the word by here, it's rightly provided by English translations. I don't, I don't know if there is any English translation that doesn't provide it. Um, but this specific, uh, construction, I guess is what you would call it. It's the dative of means or the instrumental dative. Uh, and, and basically what the instrumental dative is, is it shows us the instrument or means by which something is accomplished. That's, that's very simple. Um, but that's what the word by is showing us here. It's the instrument or means by which something is accomplished. So justification is accomplished by through the means of, through the instrument of faith, right? You can say it that way. So that's what we're seeing here. So we see the means by which an individual is justified. I'm going to say it again, declared to be right before God, treated that way, considered to be righteous, though not being righteous, is by the means of faith. So we haven't defined faith yet, but the means by which we're justified is faith. So now I think the question naturally comes up. Is faith meritorious? Are we justified by our faith because our faith is so great and act so meritorious and act of righteousness that it puts God in the position to declare us right before him? No. Like, obviously not. Of course not. One, because... You still have all your other sin. Faith doesn't outweigh your other sin. You've already sinned. You've already broken the law. You can't be declared righteous in God's sight if you've already broken God's law based on your own merit, right? But we're justified by faith because faith is simply the instrument by which we take hold of Christ. I'm going to repeat that. We are justified by faith because faith is simply the instrument by which we take hold of Christ. So faith isn't meritorious in and of itself. It's not some work that puts God in the position or in debt to justify us. All faith is here is the instrument that takes hold of Christ. And consequently, takes hold of all that Christ was and did. And 
Faith is completely distinct from righteousness. Faith isn't righteousness. It connects us to the one who is righteous. It's the bond or the, the you could say rope. I, I don't know what kind of language you want to use there. I think bond is good. It's the bond that connects us with Christ. That's what faith is. That's all it is. And faith can be weak, can be strong, but it's the thing that ties us together with Christ. Now, all the merit, this is fantastic. All the merit that is necessary to satisfy the Father is found in Christ. We do nothing except receive that merit through Christ, or th sorry, through faith in Christ. Horatius Bonar, he, he explains it so well here. He, he, he's getting at this idea that faith really is nothing. Christ is everything. Faith isn't nothing because it connects us to Christ, but he says, quote, Faith can expiate no guilt, can accomplish no propitiation, can pay no penalty, can wash away no stain, can provide no righteousness. It brings us to the cross where there is expiation and propitiation and payment and cleansing and righteousness. But it in itself has no merit, no virtue and no virtue. Sorry. End quote. What he means here is that faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you through faith. Christ has done it all. Christ's sacrifice is satisfactory to the Father on behalf of all sinners who would believe in him. On the cross, Christ says it's finished. There's no more work to do. There are no more things to do. You can't do anything that makes you acceptable in the sight of God. Christ has done everything necessary to make you acceptable in the sight of God. Because all the merit of righteousness of paying the consequence for the sins of individuals is found in Christ. It's all in him and faith just connects you to him. That's it. Faith is just, that's, what, that's why we say faith is simply the means by which an individual is justified. That's it. God declares sinners right in his sight on the basis of all that Christ did. And a sinner simply takes hold of that through faith. That's it. Clear? I, I think that's pretty clear. And, an illustration that I, I, I thought of, I, I think it's okay. Uh, I think it's helpful. But it's it's like, when you, when you think about electricity, I don't know how electricity works, but I know when I plug something into the socket, power comes out and it powers the thing. Uh, whatever it may be that I need to have power. Um, so... The way that this can be illustrated is that all the power is in the socket. The thing that needs to be powered, uh, all, all it does is get plugged in. Now, the thing that gets powered can't take any credit for the power that's running through it. All of that comes from, uh, comes from the socket. So the, the wire doesn't take any credit for having power because all that power comes from from the socket all the merit right all the righteousness right for them like christ is in him all faith is is that wire that connects us to him where all the merit is and is brought to us so 
I know that's not perfect, but it, it's something. It's something. Anyways, to sum this up, faith is necessary because it's the receiver of Christ. And Christ is the one where all the merit is. It's the connector of us to Christ. Faith doesn't save. Faith doesn't save, sorry. Christ saves through faith. If you have no faith, you have no Christ. And if you have no Christ, you have no salvation. It's really, it's that simple. But we cannot start saying that faith is some sort of meritorious work that God owes us justification for. God owes us nothing. But he freely offers us, us salvation through the sacrifice, the perfect life that Christ lived and the sacrifice that he made on behalf of sinners on the cross that is completely sufficient and satisfactory to take care of every single sin that you have ever done. That's all faith is. Just connects you to him, the one who has all the merit. I cannot overstate that point. So, if faith is the means by which we're justified because it's the thing that connects us to Christ, what is faith? Right? What is it? Um, so like I said before, most of us have an understanding of faith as in it's believing or trusting, but uh, I'm going to add some meat to that just like I did to the definition of repentance. So John Murray, I think he does a really good job in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, so I'm going to use it. Uh, he says that faith consists of three things, knowledge, conviction, and trust. And you'll see how these all work together. And, and basically everybody that I've read who is a faithful teacher of the Bible will use these same categories, but maybe use different words for them, but they explain them in, in the same way. I just think that uh, John Murray's is, is the most simple. So let's, let's move on. So the first aspect of saving faith is knowledge. Uh, and this is so simple but so often overlooked. Uh, you often hear people say, oh, well, you know, if someone is, is, uh, is, uh, what's the word for it? If someone is genuine in what they're believing in, that I think God will have mercy on them. I think God will, he'll, he'll let them be justified, but, or he'll allow them to be, whatever it is. But this makes, this, this is, it's just absolutely, it's absurd. There's no biblical warrant to make such a statement. An individual must know who Christ is, what he did, and what he's able to do before he can trust him. He must have some sort of understanding of who Christ is. We're saved by Christ. If you put, if you have knowledge of something and you put your faith in that something, that's not Christ. You're not saved by Christ. Therefore, you're not saved. It's very simple. And this all starts with knowledge. I think sometimes we imagine that the Christian faith is some sort of blind faith. We blindly jump out into the unknown, right? But this is, it's far from the truth. The Christian faith is grounded on truth and knowledge. And that truth and knowledge is from the word of God that tells us about Jesus. And we're not blindly jumping onto Jesus. We're jumping onto Jesus because he's a, he's a solid foundation, a solid rock that we know that we can trust. Paul asks a question in Romans 10, 14. Uh, he says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Right? Very basic. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? All Paul is saying here is that no one can believe in Christ if they have not heard of him. Because an individual must know who Christ is before they believe in him. 
And I'm not going to get into the implications of this majorly today, but, but this is just vital. And that's why it's included in the definition of faith, knowledge. But the question might come up, how much knowledge is necessary? Uh, and I think that might vary between individuals. Like some, some need to know so much more before they can trust Christ. And I, and that's just, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's the amount of grace that's been given or uh, that's, that's in God's sovereign plan. I don't know why. But, uh, the short answer to this question of how much knowledge is necessary is some. Some. An individual, an individual must at least have knowledge that Christ's sacrifice was perfect and satisfactory to pay for the consequences that that individual deserves. Uh, they must know that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly in order to be that perfect sacrifice. And that that Christ is trustworthy, right? There are certain things that are absolutely necessary. Um, John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, he is known to have said at the end of his life, um, although my memory's fading, uh, sorry, quote, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior, end quote. So this highlights that you don't have to know everything, but you must know something of Christ, what he's able to do. He's able to save you, that he's a great savior, right? You must know this. This isn't, it's not optional, right? So the second uh, important aspect of faith is conviction. So after knowledge comes conviction of a certain truth. And what we mean by what I mean by conviction is I must be convinced that that truth is true, that that knowledge right is true. If I'm not convinced that it's true, then it really does nothing for me, and I can't take the next step. Um, uh, a funny example of this, I guess, would be uh, I can hear about Santa Claus, right? I can I can know all the information there is to know about Santa. I can know what he does. The Every day of the year, in between what he does Christmas Day, whatever, I can know what he does Christmas night and day, whatever, whatever. I can know all the information. I can know when he was born, who he is, the life he kind of lived. But he's not real. So it, I'm not convinced that that even does anything for me. It doesn't do anything for me, even if I was convinced. But that knowledge isn't true. I'm not convinced of that. When we're, when we're talking about Jesus and, and the Bible and then w what Christ has done on behalf of sinners, um, we're talking about someone who's real, right? We're talking about the Son of God himself, whom God sent into this world to accomplish a purpose. And that purpose is redeeming a people for himself, right? So we don't just... We're, we're, we're not convinced of this truth just because we're not convincing ourselves of this truth just because it makes us feel better about life and death. In fact, I mean, Christians might have a much harder life in this life because as a direct result of their Christian faith, we're convinced of this because he's real. What he did is fact. It's truth grounded on the word of God, the faithful testimony of those who were there, right? And who wrote about him. So 
in other words, to, to sum this up, I guess, knowledge must lead to a conviction that this information is true. It has to. There's no conviction that it's true, then it's not true saving faith. But even if this is true, and I'm convinced of it, saving faith must go one step farther. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he shared a, a funny a funny illustration. It was something that he heard, uh, I think, in maybe one of his classes in seminary or something. He He says that if you believe up to this point of knowledge and conviction, then you are believing on the same level as demons. Demons knew that Christ was the Son of God. They, they knew that he would take away the sins of all those who would believe in him. And James, he writes that uh, in 2.17, James 2.17, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have an intellectual understanding of God. And they're convinced that God's real. Why would they shudder otherwise, right? Um, but they don't have saving faith. So those saving faith starts with knowledge and conviction. It can't end there. It cannot end there. And this leads us to the third and most emphasized aspect of saving faith. And that is trust. So trust is a commitment of the whole self onto Christ. It's taking all of our hopes, all of our reliance upon ourselves, our works, our perception of our own righteousness and trashing it, basically getting rid of it, knowing that it's worthless and putting everything, all of our hopes, our desires, our dreams and throwing them on Christ. It's a receiving him. It's a resting upon him uh, for salvation from sin specifically to letting go, letting go of everything and falling onto him. It's leaving all you trust upon, everything in yourself, your temporary earthly comforts, and placing all that trust on Christ. It's a letting go of trust in your own works, thinking that you might have some sort of merit before God. And it's clinging to Christ and all the merit that he is, all the merit that he's accomplished on behalf of every sinner who would receive him by faith. And this is the distinguishing mark of true faith. Without this, there is no true saving faith. Trust is the opposite of working. It's resting. It's falling. It's leaning. It's clinging. Uh, it's not working. And this is what connects us to Christ. Jesus did everything. And all there is for us to do is be satisfied in that work and lean. Lean on him. Trust in him. Fall on him. So, uh, we've handled the necessity of repentance and faith and what each of them are. I, I guess I'll reiterate on what faith is real quick. Because of the necessity of faith, faith is necessary because it is the means by which an individual is justified. And faith doesn't justify us because it is something that's so meritorious. It justifies us because it's the thing that connects us to the one who is righteous. The one who is everything for us. So it just connects us to him. And faith consists of three things. Knowledge, conviction, and trust. Knowledge that Jesus, uh, right, the, the base knowledge is that Jesus uh, is a satisfactory sa sacrifice on behalf of sinners. That he can 
and he's willing to take away your sins individually. Uh, conviction, conviction that those things are true. You can know it and you can repeat it and write it down, but you have to be convinced that that's absolutely true. And then the last and distinguishing mark of saving faith is trust falling on him. If you do not define faith that way, it is not saving faith. Faith is not simply knowledge and conviction, right? The demons, Satan is on that level of belief. You cannot say an individual is saved if he's not trusting, entrusting himself with Christ. Okay, so that is the that is the end of part one, and uh, I'll get more into what all this means for us. And I think you can see how a lot of this is just directly applicable to us. Is honestly these truths are freeing, specifically justification by faith alone. Um, but, but yeah, I'll get into more in, in part two. So I, I encourage you, if you've listened to this, just move on to it, um, listen to it. And I'm going to talk in part two more about how repentance and faith live together in the same world uh, when it comes to conversion and the specific, uh, specifically how they come together in, in uh, the reception of Christ. Um so yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. If you listened through this, I hope that it was helpful. Uh, I think it's really important to define terms and uh, understand that these these things really are necessary conditions. And that if if you don't have, if you've never repented, right? If you've never trusted in Christ, if you don't have those two those two things, if you don't see those two things in your life, it it is it is reason that to. Uh, to question and 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 um yeah th these are just they're really important so thank you for listening and i'll move on to the second part and that's where i'm really going to dig into uh how these two ideas live together in the same world thank you